0: Welcome back to Left Anchor, I'm Ryan Cooper And I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast um, Mr. Gabriel Rayburn, By i pronouncing that correctly? Yes Great, um, who is a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania in history Am I also saying that correctly?
1: Yeah, and well, history and religious studies
0: Great, wow, excellent, right up our alley over here Um and you have a recent article uh in Cambridge or wait, modern intellectual Yeah. Yeah Modern Intellectual History. Uh the article is titled The Rise and Fall of Marxist Perspectives, Eugene Genovese and the Fight for Hegemony in Radical American History Historiography. And so um just to start us off here, kind of, kind of dip, dip our toe into the into the the, the scholarship. Can you tell us a little bit about this guy Eugene Genovese? Who was he, and uh, and uh, you know what, what you know, why did he matter? I guess in the in the context of you know the the politics of the 1960s, and uh, you know the discipline of history at the time.
1: Yeah, um, of course. Well, so. For those of you who don't know, um, some of you may have heard him. Eugene Genovese was probably um, was one of the most important and at the same time controversial um, American historians of the last 50 or 60 years. Um, and he's probably most well re- remembered as someone who started off as a Marxist and became a conservative. Um, but he had a really important career and for numerous reasons. Um, so, for a little bit of background on him, mean, actually, first, he he came from an Italian-American family, grew up in Brooklyn, um, working-class background. I think his father was first, his father was an immigrant to the United States and was a dock worker. And Genevese had actually been in um, uh, the Communist Party of the United States throughout his teenage years, as a lot of um, radical historians were, um, but he was actually thrown out of the, the Communist Party. <laughs> and then he, and then he, um I think he's there's there's some quote, and I'll be, I'll be butchering it, but he said like they wanted me to zag, but I zigged, you know. So that he basically was saying he had um a problem following authority within the CPUSA. Uh, but he eventually got a, a PhD from Columbia, and was one of the a, one of a prominent group of uh, left wing historians. The general term which uses radical historians who. Are, who emerged in the post kind of McCarthy era. So, we, you know, McCarthy drives all of these left wing historians out of the academy. He's part of the kind of generation who emerges after that. And I would say he's he's important for a couple of reasons. The first is that he really is one of the historians who sets the agenda um, in what has become North America, the studies of North American slavery. Um, from kind of the 1960s and 1970s onwards. And even though um, so many of the historians who have written since on uh, slavery in the US have rejected and pushed back against many of Genovese's claims, many of the questions that he kind of asked still set the debate. So the whole new histories of capitalism, which have emerged, um, those are all in many ways responding to the questions that Genovese set. and. This is kind of reductive summing of that, but he basically argues that the South was a pre-capitalist society in many ways. And that becomes uh, the South under slavery. South was. But the other key thing about him is he becomes basically the most prominent Marxist um, in the American historical profession, almost an American colliery to someone uh, like Eric Hobsbawm. And he brings Gramsci's ideas really into um, the American historical profession. And he legitimizes the study of radical history as a field. So he's the first Marxist or the first explicit Marxist to win what is called the Bancroft Prize. It's the highest um, book prize in American history. Um, and he's the first Marxist to head the Organization of American Historians, which is one of the biggest kind of professional organizations. Um, so he's very important in terms of legitimizing Marxism in the historical profession. And then the other thing that he is kind of famous for is he becomes almost accidentally an important public figure. Um, So he's heavily involved in the teaching movement against the Vietnam War. Numerous radical professors hold these large scale anti-war teachings. And in 1965, he's famously quoted as saying, um, I don't, something along the lines of, I I, I don't know the exact quote, but I welcome a Viet Cong victory. Uh, and this gains lots of press. He's teaching at Rutgers at the time. And uh, the Republican candidate for governor that year, uh, Wayne Dumont, basically runs his uh, gubernatorial campaign. And this is only a slight exaggeration to say his main thing that he campaigns on is getting Genovese fired from Rutgers. <laughs> Richard Nixon kind of chimes in and denounces Genovese. Um, and this, so this kind of the limits of academic freedom become the central part of this gubernatorial race, and
0: uh, cancel culture—we might call it.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but for the left, and so, um, I, I Dumont actually loses this—the uh, gubernatorial race. The Democrat who, um, who has this kind of awkward position of not endorsing Genovese's position, but kind of standing for academic freedom, wins and. Uh the Rutgers board of trustees effectively sides with Genovese's right to academic freedom, but they make the working conditions so intolerable he actually eventually leaves. But he becomes well known as a public figure for for this um for the attempts to get him fired, basically.
0: Yeah, he was canceled, successfully canceled, uh through, you know, the the early iteration of a Twitter mob. And the you know the bosses uh, you know pushing him out of work, very very sad. Very we hate to see it, frankly. What happened to civility? Honestly, that's <laughs> my question. Um, so so he's a big shot um, historian, famous lefty, um, and he founds this journal uh, called Marx's Perspectives. So maybe m- can you tell us? What was the um intention when they were setting this up? Um is they got a bunch of luminaries on there and and others who were sort of signed up. And what was uh he uh rather, how was he sort of involved in the start of it and uh what was his intention in 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 doing that?
1: Yeah, so Marx's perspectives, which unfortunately is not particularly that well known, even within a lot of the academy today, even though even it only lasted for two years, but it published some really, really important articles. But in the sixties and seventies, as um, radical history gains kind of momentum, there is all these different um, left-wing academic journals and and just more mainstream left-wing journals emerging. So things like the New Left Review, um, and Past and Present in the United Kingdom, Radical History Review in the US. And then these various societies for historians on the left emerge. So you will see these caucuses emerge within the larger historical professions. Um, Genovese had always thought uh, that it was critical to have a journal to help build the movement, both within the academy, but more broadly across the left. And this he is thinking about from the 1960s onwards. It takes almost two decades um, to create this journal, which ends up being called Marxist Receptives. Um It starts in 1978, and sadly, it, only, it collapses after only 10 issues in 1980. But if you look at all the people involved in the journal, it, it's really many of the most important voices on the left um, within the Academy. So Eric, Eric Foner is involved, um, Elizabeth Fox Genovese, Genovese's wife, who is another person who moves to the right in the end, is um, the first person. The first uh, issue has people like Christopher Lash, Gore Vidal writing in it, um, and a whole host of people in the future from E.P. Thompson to Edward Said who were going to write journal articles in it. Um, Frederick Jameson, who's uh, one of the prominent Marxists um, in in, uh, literary theory, is on the board. And loads of historians who we now see as being kind of, who have pushed really important scholarship People like Barbara Fields, um, they are all kind of, uh, Dave Rodinger, Stephen Hahn, Harvey Kaye are all kind of junior faculty members or grad students at this time. And they have these smaller roles on the journal distributing it across campuses. Um, so that was the model. Um, but it was basically meant as a vehicle for creating a growth of Marxist scholarship at this, polit- this moment. And ultimately it collapses after two years and the short answer is that Genovese is worried about losing control of the journal and effectively detonates the project in the end. Um, which is, yeah. Yeah.
0: So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about Foner. Um, yeah. Eric Foner, um, is he retired now or emeritus? Uh,
1: he... I suspect he's an emeritus. Um,
0: yeah. I'm,
1: I'm... I'd, I'd be surprised if he's taking students anymore
0: yeah so so he's a older fellow now, but you know he he for people who may not know wrote uh the kind of um signature work on reconstruction um and is like the probably the preeminent historian of reconstruction, and in his late career has become something of a mini celebrity you might say among you know sort of people who uh read about that sort of thing because reconstruction has suddenly become very relevant. Um, in the modern context. And so you, you have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, quotations from letters and stuff where Foner, who strikes me, uh, in, I mean, I've never spoken with him, but from people who have and, uh, you know, his sort of, uh, you know, general reputation strikes me as like basically like a nice guy. Like he's basically a sort of decent dude who, who, who doesn't like quarreling, you know, and he's constantly trying to talk genovese down from like starting feuds and stuff but it never it it doesn't seem to work right
1: yeah yeah i mean fona is is an important historical figure within all of this i mean and he comes from a, a prominent uh left-wing family uh, i think his father and uncle i may be getting that wrong were both um uh, fairly well-known communist historians who are blacklisted from historical profession during McCarthy. Um, But he's almost in many ways, a link between um, a younger generation that might be more associated with the new left or um, the student movement and someone like Genovese. And he is consistently trying to get Genovese to bridge this gap between him and some of these younger generations. Um, And basically Arguing that um, effectively trying to go to war with these different groups within the left is futile. Um, yeah. And you know, we, we we can talk about this as well. I mean, Genovese is someone who strikes me as someone who demanded huge amounts of loyalty between people who were close to him, and and there's a constant I see um, viewing personal academic rivalries as almost political enemies. And I, I see Foner a lot um in the correspondence that I that I cite in in the article as trying to like navigate that space a bit like that we need to unite not against like um people that we might have some ideological difference with um on the left, but people who are ultimately on on the same side and wider foes of the American left, wider foes of academic freedom. And yeah. I feel that Foner is just seems exacerbated throughout this whole process, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, because Genovese is, uh, I mean, he's dedicated. As you say, like, it, it's supposed to be like a non-sectarian type of journal, right? Like, like it's set up, you know, to, to avoid w- what has been, like, kind of the chronic problem of the American left since, like, the 1910s, maybe, of just, like... All these facciparous little mini organizations of people just like quarreling with each other over like abstract points of doctrine and then getting really personally invested in the feuds and thinking like, oh, this, you know, I mean, classic, uh, you know, Judean people's front versus people's front of Judea type shit. And um, yet. Genovese is constantly like doing the exact kind of sectarian, you know, personality based type of, of feuding that is, you know, supposed to be like against the mission of the publication. Right.
1: Right. And so the the publication is aimed to bring together all these like left wing groups that have been, you know, divided for many years. And I've and got to read it because it's so great. But there's this this quote from the First ever editorial where it says, We shall not entertain ill mannered polemics, factional attacks, hurlier than thou treaties, or accusations of revisionism, dogmatism, adventurism, Talonism, Stalinism, Stalinism Trotskyism, Bernsteinism, broader liberalism, or any other wonderful devices for avoiding reasoned response to honest arguments. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then you will get, you know, say unfortunately, kind of um, saying, Well, this person isn't a Marxist, so I'm not going to let them write in the journal. And so the factionalism remains in many ways. And um, he manages to patch up some of the relationships, but uh, he has this ongoing on and off friendship fight with Christopher Lash. Um, But ultimately he, he burns a lot of these bridges, which I think is one of the real tragedies of this entire story and is kind of the way in which, Genovese basically falls out with so many different people, marginalizes himself from so many people by the end of his life. He, he died, I should say, he died about eight years ago, I think in 2012. Yeah. Um, but but from the 90s onwards, he has really um, sidelined himself, has made a real turn to the right. Um, he tries to start this organization to the historical profession, which is like a rival to the major... Um, the major historical professions where it's basically, he thinks that all of these historical professions become politicized and therefore there needs to be a new one. Um, but I mean, he ends up by the end of his life is, you know, giving talks at CPAC. (laughs) I mean, you can see them on YouTube and yeah, there's a real tragic element to that part of it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about Christopher Lash, uh, because it seems like he's the guy, he's like the There's sort There's of, a
1: Lash renaissance at the moment, isn't
0: there? Yeah, <laughs> that, I, I have not read, um, any of his books, but I, I've had them recommended as being, being like, like capturing something, you know, capturing some sort of cultural stuff that's, that's, he's, he's onto something in some ways, but is kind of a neurotic weirdo in others. And and has problems with women, and so um, yeah, th- this is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Sort of like the proximate cause of the destruction of the publication uh, is an article by Lash, right? And and can yeah. can you uh, can you tell us tell us a, a little bit about Lash? What's his deal? And then what's this uh, article about?
1: Yeah, so I mean, one of the other. The, the, one of the things I point towards it. So Lash is, is just an interesting figure, and lots of people have written about him. But he kind of he's different from a lot of these other leftists. That he comes from a fairly stable middle class family. His his father was a kind of New Dealer um, uh, bu- um, newspaper publisher, and Lash starts off in university basically as a cold war liberal. But he makes an interesting transition where he basically becomes disillusioned with. Cold War liberalism, and becomes a Marxist throughout the 1960s. Uh, At the same time, he becomes incredibly disillusioned with the student movement, which he believes is just a futile disaster that has no theory of change. And this is something that he has some um, overlap with Genovese. They both kind of think that the student movement... Um, and many of the academics who support it want to replace the working class as the kind of revolutionary agent with students. And Lash thinks this is a travesty. By the 70s, he's also reading a lot of kind of Freudian psychoanalysis and kind of merging that together with Marxism. And also has a series of critiques of kind of mainstream second wave feminism that is emerging at that time. And so what becomes from the flashpoints in the journal um, – is that Lash writes an article called The Flight from Feeling. Um, And this is the same time that he's about to become a celebrity. It's a year before uh, Culture of Narcissism comes out, which gets him an invitation to the White House. Um, But he writes this article of The Flight from Feeling. And this causes a series of kind of fractures within the journal. One is that there's a lot of kind of problematic points, you know, made in in the article about causality um that that are rightly kind of frustrating to a lot of people involved in the journal but also that this article is accepted without without it basically going through peer review to, to put it frankly and so when marx's perspective starts um this is the aftermath of second wave feminism and large-scale increases in uh, women's studies programs um, within the academy. And a lot of, finally, women actually getting academic placements, which is a relatively new thing at this point. And uh, there's a number of really important historians involved in Marxist perspectives, such as Alice Kessler-Harris and Tema Kaplan and Anne Lane, um, who, who basically say they want a kind of informal women's group within the organization to vet articles on what would effectively be feminism or, or women's studies. And this article is accepted without it being shown to them. And then when they see it, they are really frustrated by many of the conclusions that it that it puts forward. But there is also a real concern about the optics of the journal basically having its first major statement on feminism, being by someone who has been completely antagonistic towards the feminist movement for yeah. the last 10 years. And, and so I think it brings in all these interesting questions um, about identity. Um, about the, so, so And just one of the important things is Genovese thinks the article is brilliant and thinks that everyone hates the article because Lash is a man and not because of the quality of it. Um, and this is something we see time and time and again in Genovese is that he thinks the, the Academy is fracturing over lines of identity rather than lines of ideology. And so this becomes a real sticking point. Some people actually leave the journal, um, because of this article, not necessarily because of the article, but because of the lack of accountability and the lack of democracy that the, the way this journal, the way this article, um, is accepted shows. And so I think there's a lot of concerns, concerns over that. There's a statement which is signed by a lot of um, prominent academics saying about a year into the journal, saying my suspect needs to do a lot more on actually, you know, bridging these gaps with feminist scholarship. Um, but ultimately, this is one of the things that I think Um, proves unreconcilable in the end. And and just to, you know, do some of the stuff we already touched on, Genovese has already burnt so many bridges that it kind of, there's numerous people who you would expect to be involved in this project who are not involved in the project because Genovese has fallen out with them personally. Um, and, And for those who don't know, I mean, Genovese would like stand up in business meetings of the American Historical Association and be like, we must put these people down, put them down hard, you know, like make these kind of large uh, statements that were just based on alienating people. So yeah, th- that's definitely part of um, part of why this happens. And, and one of the things that we see when he shifts to the right, his his wife Elizabeth Fox another really important historian in her own right, also shifts significantly to the right. She actually embraces Roman Catholicism. They both actually become um, press and Catholics by the end. And she becomes a kind of figurehead um, for anti-feminist um, academics. She writes a prominent book in the early 90s called Feminism is Not the Story of My Life, I think. Um, yeah. Uh,
0: what's the What are the criticisms of, <clears throat> like, you know, Lash's article i i haven't i haven't uh, dug that up but um he he makes some arguments that that are 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 not just um they're not they're not just uh like anti-feminist or whatever like problematic on identity grounds as you say right uh some of these female historians they have quibbles or arguments with his class analysis they're saying he's doing bad marxism is that right
1: Yes. And I think this is one of the really interesting things about this moment as well, because you have a generation of um, feminist scholars who emerge during this time period who, depending on the time period, either go under the kind of label of Marxist feminists or socialist feminists, who on one hand are pushing back against orthodox Marxism, which they see as making this this split between base and superstructure, right? And just gender is just dismissed as being superstructural. But there it's also a critique of radical and liberal feminism as kind of seeing um a kind of ahistorical male supremacy as the root of everything. And they're trying to to find a middle ground that that doesn't fall into any of the either of those kind of reductive analysis. But one of the points that I think that is really interesting that they put forward um is is that they basically argue that Lash is not doing class analysis um, within within his work. So they basically argue that the personal relations in this article that Lash discusses, um, he doesn't do enough to address how they actually take form within an advanced capitalist society. So they basically say that that Lash is is failing to understand the actual class antagonisms going on here or the material foundations. And so I think there's an there's an interesting conversation going on um about numerous people trying to trying to bring Marxism and second wave feminism basically into conversation.
0: Yeah. Um yeah that it I mean it's it strikes me that, uh, you know, it's easy to say this many, many years after the fact, but, um, you know, that if, if you're just sort of thinking in terms of like broad politics, you know, just like, okay, you've set up this, this journal, Marx, Marxist perspectives that's trying to sort of legitimize a Marxist type of analysis. Um, you know, uh, task number one would be to keep the, uh, you know, keep it, keep it current, you know, keep, keep the, uh, keep your Marxist thinking, uh, relevant to, you know, the new topics that are cropping up in, in the discourse and in, in, in politics, uh, are are going on now. And, and, um, it's even aside from Lash's analysis, uh, being like flawed, it, it it really does seem like they had a big point that like, you know, you're, it's, it's basically conservative to, 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 to be on the kind of, you know, anti uh, women's liberation side of this thing, just as it's sort of starting to, you know, come into its own and to not, even if, you know, it's, it strikes me that you could have something like Lash's article as part of a dialogue, you know, that started with like some more serious, uh, uh, you know, historical feminist Marxist analysis written by women. And that well, would and, land a lot differently, right?
1: And I'm glad you've said that because that's also an important point, which is um, there was originally in the first issue meant to be this other article um, by two scholars. Um, I've forgotten the second one, but the, the, the main one was Heidi Hartman. And she actually publishes this article later on on her own. Um, but genovese basically writes them and says you know this needs to be revised so much i don't think it can be in the journal effectively it's those words so this really in this and this becomes a really important article it's called the unhappy marriage of Socialism uh, socialism feminism or marxism and feminism this becomes an important article when it's published a couple of years later in a different publication um but by genovese basically saying i don't want this article in the journal but i'm accepting lashes, um, with a couple of revisions just reinforces that failure to even create a dialogue, um, that you're pointing towards.
0: Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, he complains that, that they, that they don't like lash because he's a man, but it seems like he is just doing the same kind of identity politics as he's accusing the, the, the feminists of doing that. Like, you know, the, uh, uh, dismissing arguments based off of, you know, identity politics criterion without honestly considering or, you know, or even, you know, allowing the consideration of, you know, the like the give and take of actual academic disputation.
1: And I think it, it it's a real unfortunate thing in many ways, because this is a time when some of the most productive um, Marxist and socialists feminist scholarship is being produced. So, you know, people like Barbara Ehrenreich and Angela Davis are starting to write at this time. People who are really, like, addressing critical questions about capitalism um, while, like, not just sidelighting women and gender as like this kind of peripheral thing. And so there's a real missed opportunity um, at a political moment when that was really possible to kind of bring that type of scholarship in.
0: Yeah. So, So so take us through to the end then. So so they 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 do publish this article by Lash, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, and the journal survives for another two years. Um, So one of the things that's important to note is even though Genovese is incredibly important um, as a historian and so many people have engaged with his scholarship, he's never really able to hold down a prominent long term academic position. He stays at Rochester um, for about 10 years, maybe, but he never gets the the big kind of position uh, that he definitely felt he deserved. And someone of his kind of academic accolades probably did. And it's because he burns bridges everywhere. Yeah. And so what happens also during Marxist susceptives, um, coincidentally, is there's a series of ho- high-profile retirements of Faculty members at different universities, and a lot of people think that Genovese will be in line for one of those jobs. So someone like Stephen Woodward retires from Yale. There's a job at Harvard. He is—he um, doesn't get any of these jobs in this period that Marx success is happening. And even this is like reported in the Washington Post. So there's a Washington Post—I mean, imagine that you can't imagine this happening. Well, you might—it might happen today. But there's a Washington Post article that the faculty at Maryland reject giving Genovese a position in a 20 to 20 tied faculty vote. This is in the post. (laughs) And so I think this this larger context of someone who demanded such intense loyalty from from people who were close to him, he basically sees in all these job rejections um, and any criticisms of the journal, these people abandoning him. He is also in ill health at the time, um, which is obviously a hard thing to write about. And I I don't think that helps the situation. But ultimately, um, numerous members of the editorial board go to him and say, we want a more democratic way of this journal being run. And this is in the aftermath of he writes um, an issue for what would be the 11th issue of the journal that never comes. And they and they say this this. This editorial is just you attacking all these other leftist historians who you don't like. Like, this is not what we should be doing. They ask for a more collective approach to the journal's management. Um, and he steps aside basically, uh, because of these demands for, for, a more equal editorial process at the same time the journal is actually on weakened financial ground but cambridge university press has offered to take it over there's this takeover plan but then when they hear that genovese has stepped aside and given the editorial reins to elizabeth fox genovese his wife cambridge pulls the money um and so the journal collapses and um yeah and And I think it has long term ramifications because Genovese had been wanting this to happen for 20 years. He he viewed it not just as important within academia, but critical to creating um, a conscious voice on the left that could inform political struggle outside of the the academy. So they viewed it as um, something like the New York Review of Books for Liberals or commentary for conservatives. It wasn't meant to just speak to historians. Uh, and so effectively, the journal collapses. Um, yeah. And some of it merges with other leftist journals, as far as I can understand. But, yeah, it's, um, it's a nasty ending. Let's let's say that.
0: Yeah. Um, do you, Well, in, let's engage in a little uh, counterfactual speculation. I know so, historians love doing that. Um, if. You know, do you think that that uh, if he had, you know, maybe if he was a different person, but but if this had been established and had run for 20 years, do you do you think that um, that would have made like some serious political difference, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of maybe keeping the embers of the left kind of burning a little bit more than they did? Uh, you know, where, where it wasn't just like, you know, Bernie Sanders by himself for, for uh, you know, 20 years in Congress. Do you think that um, would have had any of the effects that he uh, wanted to um, achieve?
1: Yes and no. I mean, I think it had the journal um, been a success and we would have to <laughs> Think through how that happened. I think it would have been an important avenue for continuing Marxist scholarship. Um, but I think we need to be careful to, even with the success of other publications, to overestimate the power that a single journal could have on, on creating a political movement. And, yeah. I, and, and I would, I would, I would really, I think, caution against that. Um, but I think certainly as an as an avenue of producing certain forms of academic scholarship, certainly, and you know that that it failed is is a real travesty because there was a re- you know Marxism was growing as an academic field, and then there needed to be an avenue to for that and
0: yeah well, yeah, I mean I guess at that point you 're running right into reaganism you know it would have, it would have been hard sledding for for anybody even if you weren 't a quarrelsome kind of jackass. <laughs> Yeah,
1: and I mean we've we've seen other important publications like something like Radical History Review, which comes out in the early seventies and which is a similar kind of journal, um uh is still important to this day and produces really critical scholarship. But there is only so much an academic journal can do, right? Or even even a journal outside of the academy, you know, something like the, there's limits to what Jacobin can do, even though, you know, it's played an important role to someone in in a leftist revitalization in the United States.
0: Yeah, reading your article, I think the most impressive thing about Jacobin is that it's continued to exist for a decade. Um, they they kind of have done the ecumenical, you know, to, to, at least to some degree. Uh, much uh, uh, Bhaskar Sankara has not been, uh, you know, feuding publicly with everybody and all of his putative allies. Um, so I, I wanted to... You know, maybe think through a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what kind of lessons this might, uh, uh, teach about the things that Genovese was arguing. Um, you know, because I guess there's two ways you could think about this. Uh, you could say, okay, Genovese is just a quarrelsome, You know, asshole who takes criticism or like like argument as like personal like insults. And he's just a guy who who is horribly suited to honest academic debate with most people because he's like his personality is not that way. Uh, it, it, he's, he's just a bad figure for that. But another way you could think about it, maybe to bring in a little bit of crude Marxism base and superstructure type of thinking would be to say that a superstar academic is just really poorly suited to, uh, uh, be able to navigate the kinds of collective compromises that would be necessary to, uh, you know, make this type of thing a, a going concern. You know, it's like if, if you, if, if you're just like a single person and, you know, you write something and it becomes very successful, I think that can, at least in some cases, it can go to people's heads, uh, and make them, you know, exacerbate their worst tendencies, the, uh, you know, b- belief that, You know, other people have bad motivations that, that, you know, I'm always right, you know, that sort of thing. And so, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe Genovese needed a little less Gramsci in the thinking about his the design of his own publication you know that he should have thought a little bit more about the base so to speak of the like formal organization of how things were set up to deal with the way that his own power and influence would uh you know tend to warp the uh the 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 system of production of academic articles
1: well i mean i think that doesn't have to be a mutually exclusive argument though i mean i think of course one thing that i was was trying to 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 push in the article is that um personality can have a devastating effect on political projects and creating unity um and and Genovese is somewhat of a unique character, but that is is not unique to him, um, even if he is a kind of larger than life version of it. And we see this all the time in which um, personality ends up destroying what can be really potentially fruitful projects. And I mean, there's a great quote, actually, by I think it may even be in. Jacobin in an obituary for Genovese um, by Leah Robutho, the late uh, great historian, who, who, and I quote, and he says, The difference between Genovese and Gutman, just Gutman is another person I talk about a lot in the journal who we fell out with. The difference between Genovese and Gutman and the question of slave autonomy was sliding comparison to other scholarly disputes about, for example, the existence of an American empire or the effectiveness of federal regulation of big business. So you <laughs> see these like scholarly debates despite the fact that a lot of these figures probably have a lot of unity together on some of the larger questions about American capitalism. And they, they, as was was, was suggesting. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think, you know, as Marxists, Marxists leftists, we like to, to almost depersonalize what we, what we talk about and, and emphasize structures and social relations. And I think that's right. But I think there are lots of these examples where you do have these personality clashes, which completely derail, really affect, you know, effective alliances, uh, potential projects. Um, The other thing that I think is important is that, you know, this happens. And this is when you were speaking about, you know, what we might think about today. This happens at a moment where the left believes there's a real possibility for change in the United States. Right. You've had the civil rights movement. You have a large scale anti-war movement there is a crisis in liberalism. And when you think there is a real possibility of change, the stakes become higher in everyone's minds, because change is possible. Um, and I think that can, in some cases, even increase these kind of personal elements to it. Yeah. At the, at the same time, I would go back and say it, it's Genovese is hard in the sense that I'm there is a lot of these academics who were Marxists, who went to the right. There is obviously a lot of star studded academics. He is still fairly unique in, in terms of his of his characteristics. I mean, he is um the demands of for loyalty, the the way he responds, the kind of I mean he writes in war metaphors in a lot of his you know, a lot of his letters. I mean, he you know, kind of um you know, there's letters where he'll say, We'll try your way of diplomacy, but if it doesn't work, I need everyone to agree that if you go to war, we will fully go to war and you will like follow me as the general. I mean, it's basically implying those kind of things. Um, and so, yeah, I <laughs> it's a it's a unique person who does point towards maybe some larger issues we do face on the left.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that certainly jumps out is that uh the idea of solidarity is easy to say, harder to put uh into practice. And um yeah, I mean you say Genovese is unique, but there there are certainly many other examples you could point to. Uh you know, I, I I'm I'm reminded of a line from uh Hobbsbaum that uh uh the the uh, about the um German Communist Party, you know, f- deciding that the the you know the, I mean, I guess on orders from Moscow that the Social Democratic Party of Germany was they were social fascists or whatever, but that he, um, you know, that was a common thing across across the world. He he says something like, you know, uh, uh, alas, as is characteristic of political radicals, they focus their fire on their nearest potential competitor rather than their actual like larger enemy. <laughs> Um, and, and so, yeah, the, the, you know, solidarity is something that I think, you know, people need to take a lot more seriously than, than, than they do. Or maybe, you know, there just hasn't been a lot of like thorough, you know, uh, putting solidarity into practice, um, in terms of, uh, procedures or something. I I don't know exactly how you would do it, but but ways that you could sort of adjudicate conflict in a way that would sort of keep people's minds on the, you know, on the bigger issues and not, you know, let uh not let people get swept up into these, you know, basically what are Jersey Shore feuds, right? Like
1: <laughs> Well, and I mean, I think there's also the question of like how do you how do you build solidarity without it just becoming liberal pluralism? Where you just put together as allow as many different ideas to come into the room as possible, and then
0: right, yeah,
1: <laughs> go in it, go in as many ways as you can. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the the lack of solidarity or the the inability to build pathways, constructive pathways, where you can say, okay, we have these these disagreements, but we still have a lot more in common than we do with other groups. I mean, and you pointed this out and, you know, Marx's perspectives, and this is obviously, um, coincidence, but it matters in terms of the larger context. Marx's perspectives collapses like two months before Reagan is elected. Whoops. <laughs> and, 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 and in, in like, and one of the interesting things about going back and reading a lot of people during this time is that with a couple of, with a couple of rare key examples is, um, not a lot of people take Reagan seriously, right? At, the, at this time, um, and and you almost even see this on a and I mean within in the left, and you even see this on a kind of lower level. So in 1978, um, when the Organization of American Historians is electing their president, it's Genovese against a kind of conservative historian from Harvard, Oscar Handlin, and Genovese is adamant that. The purpose of the election is not to defeat the liberal and conservative forces in the academy, but to solidify power within the left (laughs) in the academy. He wins the election in the he does win the election, which is important, but it it shows you where his mindset is at at this point, which is like we must triumph within the left before either we can take on right or the center. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the ways in which that that creates real problems it is uh, I mean that's the problem we live with today. I think.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's it strikes me at least that this is a good example of uh, you know the pit, the pitfalls of personality conflict uh, and the temptations of um, basically a kind of authoritarian politics, you know, and and kind of person cults of personality. Um, to, to where people can get sucked into a m- uh, m- method of thinking which is you know basically focused on like reproducing the kind of th- uh, political actions that led like Genghis Khan to consolidate control over all of the you know m- mongol tribes in the asian steppe you know in the the 1200s or whatever it was you know to, th- to 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 where like the goals of you know leftism or whatever you're trying to do just become about just political power uh, within you know a particular defined context, and p- and people I think are can be pretty good at convincing themselves that you know getting our faction in charge of DSA or whatever is the only thing that matters, and leaving aside like Amazon, you know, um, and so it's it strikes me that that uh, is at least a you know important kind of thing to keep in mind because. You're, you know, reading your article, uh, the, the, a lot of it sounds very current, you know, that, 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 oh, we, you know, we, we have a new moment on the left and we're trying to bring in, you know, a new serious lefty analysis and, um, you know, uh, we, you know, we feel like now is our moment and then we start arguing about feminism and the whole thing just sort of like face plants into the dirt. And I think that could happen again if people aren't careful.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's always going to be a tension, right? Which is you need to build some form of structure and power to be able to influence anything. Right. So it's it's not as simple as just saying, um, you know, if only leftists would go out and oppose the right, then the right would collapse. Right. There has to be power built. And so it's that tension between how do you build power enough that it becomes effective to oppose um right wing reactionary forces and to actually make change and how do you do that without just kind of doing it's our way or the highway <laughs> everyone else must be kind of pushed aside
0: yeah um well i've got just one more question for you it's mm-hmm. a little little bit more of a like nerdy question um but you you make a comment uh that you that the the marxist uh uh marxist perspective and a lot you know a lot of the like lefty uh, critiques have often been characterized as being against the consensus approach to history. Yes. And, um, you say it's more about the, the radical, like, like inter, you know, disputes. We've talked about that a little, a little, a lot already, but can you, can you tell us a little bit about the consensus approach? Um, and, uh, you know, how that sort of fits into what we've been talking about?
1: Yes. So that, that's actually an important contextual question. So, um, until the 1960s, the kind of dominant um, group of historians in the United States were what was called consensus history, and this was kind of a kind of effectively just like liberal history. If we think of like <laughs> so like radical history as like Marxist and left wing history, um, so like Richard Hofstadter's like American political tradition. Um, so these kind of books focus on these kind of common themes that would have held the U.S. together. Um, The kind of liberal tradition. Um, They're often kind of also buying some of the kind of big man history of like ex-president as being the driving force of everything. And so radical history emerges really as a kind of challenge by both using a materialist Marxist analysis and a kind of grassroots analysis, kind of saying like, let's look at like how... um, You know, instead of it just being like the New Deal as a result of purely FDR, it's like, let's look at how like unions built political power to like force FDR to like make change or make concessions or, you know, instead of uh, or, you know, thinking about grassroots organizing the civil rights movement. So radical history is really a challenge to this what is called consensus history beforehand, which is this idea that there was this kind of um, unifying theme in American history. Um, and I, th- I think in many ways, much of what radical history, even though it was never more than a minority within the profession, many of the things they have argued have have, have came to be universally accepted, not, not universally accepted, but accepted by a lot of historians. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, you don't – I mean – this seems to me, maybe you can correct me on this, to come directly out of Jim Crow, you know, and like the death of Reconstruction. Be like, yeah. oh, we all agree that there's yeah. never been any class conflict in America, uh, that right. basically all the people have agreed on the basic parameters of political uh, disputation. And that's just like a totally contingent product of like the corrupt <laughs> bargain of 1876. And, you know, like, oh, we'll just let... You know, black people won't have the vote in the South and, uh, you know, unions will all be killed by the, you know, national guard. And so it's like, as soon as like the, the sort of New Deal, like, uh, you know, masking tape over all of this, like sort of festering, uh, you know, contradictions comes apart, like there were right back to, you know, gilded age, like, you know, Amazon versus the workers at the uh, plant in Alabama.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think an important part of the story is that we have these histo- – you know, there are historians who emerged in the 1930s, probably the most famous to be W.E.B. Du Bois, who are actually doing but yeah. much of the work that radical historians do later, right? Um, so Du Bois writes, you know, Black Reconstruction in America, which is just a remarkable book for many reasons, one being that he wasn't allowed into the archives um, <laughs> because of racism.
0: I didn't know that. And
1: yet he produces this – just a remarkable piece. Oh, he's definitely not allowed into certain archives. Um, and there, you know, at the time in 1935, not a lot of people read that book just because or within kind of mainstream Academy because, because of the racism of the profession. Um, but even a lot of the, the historians who who are writing really important history in that time are, are driven out of the Academy by, by McCarthyism um, or a blacklisted because for their associations, um, for being in the Communist
0: Party. I mean, that's Foner, right? Uh, I mean, Reconstruction, uh, his his book is basically just doing Black Reconstruction with access to the archives and his own, you know, c- like considerable uh, historical talent, of course. But like, yeah. he's, he's following yeah. that tradition.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but, you know, like Du Bois is fascinating because he gets critiqued by. Other Marxists. Yeah, there's all these splits because Du Bois argues that um that in the US during the 19th century that um, black workers and were effectively the proletariat. And so then you have these more orthodox Marxists who who really take offense to that and the idea that like slaves could have this political consciousness. And you know, he's borne out in the end. You know, people have argued that since that he was the du bois was basically right but you know this is seen as such an affront from some orthodox marxists and then obviously the mainstream of the academy who just hold these incredibly racist views about reconstruction right because the dominant view really until you know until the 1960s and 1970s onwards is that reconstruction was a mistake right yeah. um and Du Bois is one of the first people who really challenges that in the 30s. Um, but unfortunately, he's not widely read because of the racism in the academy. Anyway, that's probably a conversation for a different day.
0: But. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. Any any final comments before I uh, let you go?
1: Um, not that I can think of. Uh, no, but it was fun. It was fun talking. I'm, I'm glad we got the chance to do it.
0: Yeah, let's uh yeah, we we'll, we'll, we'll have you back on the podcast when Alexi is here and we can okay. talk some more about obnoxious we'll about- academics or-, or,
1: or we can talk about the religious right which is actually my my Main area of study. If you want to, if you want to do that
0: instead, absolutely. Yeah, we, well, you know, we're an ecumenical podcast. We don't do beefs with people, and uh, you know, we we uh, we are purely rational, no, uh, purely solidarity, no, no feuding, and uh, no personality conflicts. Um, <laughs> so, Gabriel Rayburn, uh, the the I we will link to the article. Um, okay. I think you may. It, I think it's hard to get. Um, You may have to use some of the, uh, uh, you know, the workarounds that exist. I
1: I am. I have like a code for giving out X amount of free copies. So if people want to contact me, um, they're welcome to. And if I can try and send it to them.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We can do that if you're interested in reading. And it is pretty good. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, I've read a lot of uh, academic articles and sometimes they're a little turgid, you know, a little, (laughs) little boring. Uh, you know, no offense to our academic friends. That seems to be kind of the required style, but this one's quite lively and, uh, and, and very interesting. You know, there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of, you know, people, uh, fighting like cats in a sack. And so, you know, it's fun to read, uh, you know, the Jersey shore Marxism. We love it. But anyway, uh, thanks for coming on, uh, Gabe and, um, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.